Welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Greg Wilpert. This is part two of my conversation with Rene Rojas and Hilary Goodfriend about the state of neoliberalism and the left in Latin America. Rene is Assistant Professor of Human Development at the State University of New York, Binghamton, and Hillary is a doctoral uh, student in Latin American Studies at the National Autonomous University of Mexico and a contributing editor with Jacobin Magazine and Jacobin Latin America. Thanks again, both of you, for joining me again. Thanks, Greg. So um, I want to continue uh, with uh, the question about what's going on with the right in Latin America. That is, um, the failures of the left seem to have allowed, that is, of the first pink tide, which we focused on last time, uh, seem to have allowed the right wing, and in some cases the extreme right, such as in Brazil, and I guess you could include uh, Colombia, and then almost in Peru and Bolivia, to return to power. Now, um, you could say that uh, the right tried to reverse the pink tide's policies and to basically continue the neoliberal policies of the 1990s, uh, that is by opening up the countries to transnational capital, um, but at the same time they're doing this with a kind of right-wing nationalist rhetoric. Now, um, my question is now, first of all, whether you'd re- agree with this characterization and how would you basically describe their uh, strategy? Let's start with you, Hillary, since the last time we left off with Rene. Sure. Um, yeah, I think, I think we're seeing a couple different approaches. I think on the one hand, there's a right-wing strategy that, as you characterize, is using these sort of nationalistic uh, tropes and, you know, uh, even quasi fascist or in some or right-wing populist um, approaches, right, to gain power through existing democratic forms, right? Uh, On the other hand, I think we're seeing, um, you know, a totally anti-democratic authoritarian right-wing resurgence as well. Um, And I think you can look at something like uh, Honduras, uh, for a pretty clear picture of what that looks like, you know, a regime that has really no popular base, no popular support whatsoever, um, and has been able to sort of govern through the chaos so far without without one. Um, so I think that those are sort of two, two different uh, strategies that we're seeing. Um, and I think in, in both cases, though, yeah, I think there's sort of two different approaches uh, to the the failures of the prior sort of more traditional oligarchic bourgeoisie um, U.S. backed neoliberal rule, um, and I think that the um, the lack of a more sort of coherent approach is a symptom of the um, the lack of a of a consensus, you no, know, of, of a sort of a right wing consensus um, and and a consensus of capital as to how it's going to um, resolve or respond to the, the current crisis. That's where, where I'd start. Um, what do you think, uh, Rene? How would, uh, how would you assess this? Yeah, I, I really agree with the way Hillary put it. Um, and I would, I would key in on, uh, you know, what she termed a lack of coherence. I think that, you know, just as the region and societies throughout the region um, as a whole, um, is in crisis and are in crisis. And just as the left throughout can be said to be in crisis, I think the right is in crisis as well. And they mo- mostly, I mean, there's some exceptions, 
uh, elites have not figure out, figured out a way um, to vie for power, uh, a, a, a viable way, right? Um, and and so I think that's that's mostly what's going on. And I think that helps us understand possibly a, a somewhat different way of approaching it. Many talk about a neo-authoritarian kind of wave, right, as uh, pushing back against kind of the, the wave of, of pink tide reformers. I think that's kind of overstated. Um, I think there's much more variation going on, and a lot of it has to do with Hillary. What Hillary mentioned. I mean, they're, they're trying different things. Not much is is working. You know, two good examples are what's happening in Chile, for instance, where the old regime has just crumbled, or is is in is is crumbling as we speak, right? And that means that the old right, the center right, has is, has to reinvent itself to remain. Uh, relevant. Um, I think something similar is going on, for instance, in Mexico. I think Hillary would probably be able to speak to this far more than, than I would. Um, but even with all the failures of Amnuel's first years in office, you know, the elite opposition has not been able to really do much with his shortcomings. And they're still trying to search for viable ways of articulating um, a right wing right-wing program. Um, but, you know, fortunately for, for us and for the masses and working people throughout the region, um, that means, and, you know, I think that the right and the neo-authoritarian right is perhaps less of a threat um, than many thought it would be at, at this point. But um, don't you think, I mean, we're, I mean, there's a typical kind of situation, I guess, uh, it seems, where you know, you have uh, the reintroduction of neoliberalism on the one hand, which, um, you know, in, in the north, uh, the, in the developed world, is actually being declared kind of dead or so, or being passé because of, you know, the coronavirus pandemic and uh, the idea that, you know, neoliberalism is kind of, I don't know, ideologically bankrupt. Uh, but um, but that's being implemented, it seems, in, in these countries. At the same time, as you're mentioning, there's this, uh, there's this, uh, yeah, imposition of uh, of an authoritarian regime, which is something that you know actually in Latin America has always gone together, the neoliberalism with authoritarianism, and so I, I mean I just mean I guess basically what I want to uh, point out to our question is, is that even though in terms of a viable electoral strategy it might be questionable, but just by the virtue of the fact that it's combined with this kind of you know repression. Um, and, and that means essentially a repression of, of the forces that are challenging neoliberalism and the right. Um, wouldn't that still mean that it's going to be viable in some sense, even if you know not on a kind of typical political uh, way, but on a on a on a violent basis? Uh, what do you think? Well, that's I mean that's the question, right? I think it's pretty clear that as a sort of um, as a that neoliberalism, neoliberalism has lost its, its hegemony um, in terms of its legitimacy um, in, in uh, both the um, you know, imperialist and central economies and, and in the periphery. Um, but in the absence of an alternative um, hegemonic accumulation strategy, uh, we're seeing the, the continuation and often um, deepening of some of those, um, you know, privatizations, deregulations, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I think uh, 
I think that's the question. I mean, to what extent and how sustainable is it for capital to continue to just impose these policies and, and this, this strategy by force, especially in a, in a context of economic crisis? You know, I think the anti-democratic imposition of neoliberal um, neoliberal economic uh, development models is one thing in a more favorable, uh, you know, uh, climate for accumulation, and it's quite another today. René, do you have anything to add to that? Um, yeah, again, I think we're, we're largely in agreement. Um, I, I think neoliberalism is being reproduced now throughout the region, not by a resurgent right, um, but really because no force has been able to step up and kind of take charge in, 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 uh, in all these crises. So it, it's kind of through inertia that neoliberalism is, is continuing, I, I, I would say. Um, I mean, that's an oversimplification, but a lot of that's going on. Take, for instance, the case of Peru, right? It, it really illustrates everything we're talking about. Utter incoherence and fragmentation among elites and the right. And the reason that, that you know, uh, Castillo, the left one, is because elites wouldn't get behind Keiko, uh, Fujimori, right? So they don't really have a strategy um, to rule as a ruling class right now um, in political terms. Um, but at the same time, on, on the other side of the ledger, the left and popular forces, right, have not been able to come together with a strong enough, I think, um, proposal for governing, right, um, that would really threaten elite interests and, and cause it to, to somehow um, push back and fight back and impose an even harsher neoliberal model. Um, and I think that that's one of the reasons perhaps that, you know, a neo-authoritarian kind of resurgence might not yet um, be too much of a threat. And it's largely because I think the left isn't much of a, th a threat yet, even though it ha has had some breakthroughs, right? Um, and so insofar as the left and popular forces are not posing a direct challenge to neoliberalism, I don't see the right right now having to resort, um, you know, broadly speaking throughout the region um, to a, a coercive military or authoritarian strategy. Well, that's actually what I wanted to turn to next is, is exactly what the most recent developments are on the left um, in Latin America. And here I'm thinking particularly of the three most recent elections. Those are in Ecuador, Bolivia, and in Peru. They all have something in common um, that uh, for obviously they were uh, runoff elections against um, a, a very, very, uh, you know, extreme right. Um, I mean, the one in uh, Bolivia, I guess, was uh, uh, was uh, a little bit more mixed, just because. But it was an extreme right in the sense that that they were also opposing the coup that had happened, just or the coup government, really. Um, but um, but uh, and what they also had in common was that they were really the underdogs in those situations. I would say, um, in the sense that. Uh, that all of the media was uh, lined up against them in Ecuador, uh, Bolivia, and Peru. It was very difficult for them to get their message out, really. Uh, and despite these incredible odds, 
um, they almost, uh, in the case of Ecuador, almost won the election, that is, uh, with Andres Arauz uh, coming very close, uh, to, even though he had, like, everything against him, from what I could tell. And then, of course, uh, we know that in Peru it was, you know, uh, less than a half a percentage point difference to Keiko Fujimori. And, uh, okay, Luis Arce in Bolivia had a much more substantial margin, but too, uh, he was, you know, like I said, uh, campaigning against uh, essentially uh, a, a very, or in the context in which uh, there was a coup government. So, but they managed to get so close. And um, I'm wondering if this signals maybe, first of all, is a second pink tide coming? And if so, um, uh, I, I mean, what um, you know, what uh, what would their their um, chances of success be? But uh, what do you think? I mean, do you think, first of all, looking at kind of a little bit more into the future, and also considering the electoral successes in in Argentina and Mexico before that, uh, does it make sense to talk about a second pink tide? Um, let's start with you again, Hillary. Sure. I'm not sure if, if what we're seeing is necessarily a second pink tide. I don't know that I'd quite characterize it that way. I think there there might be at least uh, at least two tendencies. Uh, one is sort of a, a restoration of um, of the first pink tide, uh, and I think that that's you know what we can see in in Bolivia, for example, um, and, and in Argentina. Um, and on the other hand, I think that there is uh, potentially uh, something, a, a new sort of left um, project potentially, or, or a different, a, new, a newer expression, a different expression of a left project um, in, in the mobilizations and the processes that we've seen uh, in Chile, for example, um, and potentially in Peru, but I'm not quite sure yet. Um, but I, I say that because I, I think that there's, a way in which there's there's a sort of a danger in um, in the, the the restoration of that first pink tide project, and that it can sort of tend towards this, almost a conservative um, approach. You know, you're sort of appealing to uh, the recuperation and, and maintenance of, of gains made, rather than uh, potentially you know um, sort of a, a more a broader structural advances. Um, and that's a, that's a danger in, in the restoration, but, but not, it's not guaranteed by any means. Uh, whereas I think, I think that there's a little bit more innovation um, in this like constituent process, for example, that we're seeing in Chile that, that could, um, could really uh, provide, um, if not a model, at least um, a, lot of, a lot of inspiration and lessons for the rest of the region. What do you mean by innovation? In what sense? Well, I think that the way in which um, they're sort of like rethinking the state um, and, and popular participation um, is, is being uh, carried out uh, is seems to have a sort of a different, uh, a different energy and, and like I said, a sort of a different um, a different orientation than just the the, the recuperation of um, of a past uh, administration. Hmm. Rene, yeah, once again, I mean, what Hillary said, <laughs> uh, um, I think she's spot on. I, I think there are two, at, well, at least two, uh, different kind of paths. Um, that we're seeing now for the left in Latin America, and and I think restoration is a good, a very good term for what's happening in, you know, the former or that first pink tide wave. 
in our last conversation, I described something akin to like an equilibrium, very contested, right? But in these countries, particularly Venezuela, I'm sorry, um, Bolivia and Argentina, Venezuela is just, I think, a case, you know, apart right now on its own because it's because of all the um, difficulties. But um, where where you know the right was not able to undo the reforms of the Kirchners of Morales Lamas, right? Um, and so there's a you know a a a, a tug and a, a, a pulling back and forth, right? Mm -hmm. But both Arce and Fernandez, you know, come back um, a little more moderate than their predecessors, right? Um, restore the old kind of pink tight order with some concessions and, and you know, manage this kind of, of a balance, I think. Um, it's not at all the case, that, uh, you know, um, in, for instance, um, Bolivia, I'm sorry, in, um, in, in Peru and in Chile. Um, and, and but yet again, there are huge differences between those two cases as well. I don't think they should be grouped together either. Hillary's correct in my view that um, there's more room for innovation. There's room for, for kind of changes and reforms that we haven't seen in a while. But um, the Chilean case comes after a 10 year cycle of, of protest and organizing and of you know a collapsing um, post authoritarian order. Um, where, where, and, and that built up new forces, right? Um, primarily the, the Frente Amplio, I would say, and new social movements that have been able to coalesce now in the Constituent Assembly with the old Communist Party into a left bloc. Peru experienced nothing but disintegration over the past 30 years, right? Since uh, Fujimori was in office and, and you know, um, in the early 90s, I would say. And so Castillo wins, but only because all other forces, all other rival parties and movements have just crumbled and he barely ekes out a victory. And he doesn't have much behind him in terms of broad social mobilization and organization. So it's gonna be much tougher in, in Peru, I would say. Yeah, no, I think definitely the, the Chilean um, situation is, is really kind of exceptional in some ways, because it seems like uh, one of the very few cases where there's uh, really a kind of a grassroots movement. I mean, I don't know, I'm not an expert on Chile, but it's just my impression from the from the distance. Um, uh, without uh, a very strong leader ahead of it. I mean, just to make the comparison quickly to to um, Venezuela, because um, there you also had uh, you know grassroots movements of sorts, but they were all brought together under the leadership uh, and very kind of strong leadership of, of Hugo Chavez. Uh, who then also pursued a constituent reform process, you know, a constituent, uh, you know, rewriting the constitution, rethinking the role of the state, and things that you mentioned, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, introducing participatory democracy and so on. Uh, but it was a, a very different uh, approach uh, or strategy, let's say. Um, uh, whereas the Chilean one seems to be quite different also, you know, from everything else we've seen. I mean, if you make the comparison also to Bolivia with Evo, under Mo Evo Morales, I just want to see if, uh, René, since uh, Chile is, is your home country, as far as I understand, um, if you would agree with that, uh, that this is really kind of an exceptional process there. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, and once again, I, I'm, this is what Hillary was getting at, right, when she was talking about an innovative, exceptional case. Um, absolutely. You, you know, and it's still wide open. You know, anything can, can happen. 
But um, there are some similarities, nonetheless, with the Venezuelan case. The, the main one, I think, is that what came to be known as kind of the concertacion order or regime, you know, what I call post-authoritarian neoliberalism um, in, in Chile, you know, that reigned for 30 years. And there was this sharing of power between the center right and the center left. I think is broadly reminiscent of the punto fijo system in Venezuela, where you have these two main blocks, right, sharing party. One is dominant, um, you know, or the other, and it quickly disintegrates. And um, you know, I think that's part, something similar uh, happened in Chile. Uh, one of the differences I think is that the sustained protest movement and mobilization in Chile. Um, I should say in Venezuela, largely occurred after, right, the disintegration of the old system after Chavez comes to power with, you know, one, one series of challenges by the right and by elites after another that really serves to activate um, what came to be, you know, the Chavez base um, and, and ended up with this unified, right, or somewhat unified mass movement funneled into Chavismo, eventually into the PSU, right? In Chile, you have the mass mobilization that is actually bringing down the old order, yet it remains quite fragmented, as as you described, Greg. Um, there, there are certainly positive signs, which we can get into later. Um, and right now, the Constituent Assembly is the the convention, as it's being called. It's actually an assembly, more, more accurately. It is the arena, right? Um, in which these kinds of realignments and reconfig reconfigurations are, are taking place. Yeah, we'll definitely have to watch it. It's very interesting. And also with the new president of that, uh, that uh, assembly, uh, it's a very unusual thing to happen. But um, I want to move on to the question of you know, what um, you think um, are the lessons that uh, the left in Latin America uh, has or should be learning at this moment, moment in time. I mean, um, and maybe what this might mean for the left also more generally around the world, but uh, specifically drawing on the experiences in Latin America. So um, what do you think, uh, Hillary? Uh, what can the left learn from what's happened so far and wh what does it need to learn going forward? Sure. Well, I think I think the we, we touched on this a little bit um, in our earlier conversation, but I also think that the lessons vary a lot depending on um, on the cases that we're looking at. Um, for example, I think the the role of the armed forces in the in the coup in Bolivia should uh, you know raises a lot of questions about um, the kinds of you know institutional reforms necessary um, you know when the left takes power. Um, and and I think you know as as Renee mentioned earlier. Um, obviously, the question of you know dependence on commodity rents uh, is really crucial in terms of you know what happens, how does that, how do those rents get reinvested, and you know when that's when that's possible. Um, and it's a lesson that I'm not sure you know is being learned evenly. Um, certainly, in the case of Mexico, I think there's a lot of concerns that the the push to sort of you know restore Pemex and, and you know recover the uh, national oil production is is not necessarily uh, being done in a way that it's going to um, eventually extract the country from the, the dependent position that it's in. Um, but uh, 
I, I do think that um, that we're seeing right now in, for example, you know, the Chilean case, a lot of the lessons from the first pink tide being applied in a new context, which is why, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest that the that Chile represents necessarily a rupture uh, from the previous processes, though I agree that it is it is pretty exceptional. Um, but I think that the sort of um, the way in which the um, the sort of plurinational approach um, and, and you know considerations of uh, popular participation in the refoundation of the state. I think that's that's inherited, you know, from these prior processes, um, and that's that's exciting to see. What do you think, Rene? Um, yeah, again, I think those those are important lessons. I do I think that the left generally has absorbed has, you know, really assimilated a basic lesson that I think was the core of your book, Gregory, um, that the the left has to challenge for power and has to challenge the state. Um, it's, it's insufficient, but it's a necessary part of the strategy. And I think throughout, largely, um, you know, thanks in part to what was learned in the Venezuelan case and, uh, and other uh, similar cases, which you, you know, highlighted in your book, um, the left has really understood this, has, has, has really learned that you have to challenge elites at, at the level of the central state and, 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 and fight for state power. Um, of course, that's not sufficient. Um, along with that, I think you do need um, forms of disruptive mass mobilization, right, which will back the left in positions of power in the state once it confronts uh, resistance um, from business elites, right, and the military perhaps. Um, I, I'm far more optimistic about the potential role of the military, but, you know, Chileans have been wrong in the past about this, so. Um, Wait, what do you mean by that? I'm not sure. I'm referring to the Allende experience, um, where you know the popular unity, um, at least sectors in, within it, primarily the, the communist and Allende's faction of the socialist, were fairly confident that they could manage the military and the military wouldn't intervene. Um, so it was just a, a reference to our dark past. But um, you know, along going back to what I was saying, uh, I think the the left has also learned the lesson that you, you do need continued pressure from below, disruptive mobilization, um, to really show elites that if they try to resist, if they try to roll back reforms, the cost that they'll face will be steeper, you know, because of the disruptions uh, on the streets, in work sites, in neighborhoods, etc. Um, another important lesson I think that the left needs to learn, and this is where, you know, I have a, I'm, I'm keeping a, a keen eye on what happens in the constituent assembly in Chile is that the left has to be a socialist left it you know we're not going to fight for all out you know socialism um, but it has to be a radical left that really does redistribute power and really does redistribute resources and income um, throughout throughout society uh, because in the absence of that you know you can get another bolsonaro i think quite easily and i think bolsonaro is a manifestation of um, popular um, disillusion with with Lula and, and the PT and, 
And so we have to be uh, watchful of, of that possibility. And the best way to do that is to really, you know, push um, for for radical reforms, for non-reformist reforms, as, as some of us used to call them. I'm probably going to make a lot of enemies by the next thing I'm going to say, but um, your parallel between uh, PT and Bolsonaro reminds me of the parallel that many people in the U.S. draw between uh, the Obama presidency and Trump's election, um, which isn't to say that Obama was uh, like Lula, but uh, there are certainly parallels. Um, but um, so, yeah, I mean, you guys, uh, I think I think it's very interesting. So we've kind of identified, uh, I guess, three or four different areas that uh, that the left has or needs to learn. One, one is the role of the military. And I guess you could add the role of the police as well, because they were kind of played an important role also in, in the Bolivian coup. Um, and then, of course, uh, there's, uh, you know, the importance of having uh, social movements and the constant organizing uh, going on. Uh, and some countries have learned this lesson. I think, uh, like I, I think in Venezuela that was the case compared to Ecuador, where I think uh, Rafael Correa was not able to organize a social base, um, and um, which is why I think they lost. But um, then there's also, um, and then of course the, the economic strategy. And I think that's also very interesting how uh, Alvaro Garcia Linera, the vice president of Bolivia, had emphasized the, the importance of an economic strategy. And I think that was one of the reasons I think Bolivia was relatively successful is that in a sense more successful than Venezuela, at least economically. Um, although you can quibble about or argue about um, whether um, you know it was radical enough. Um, but um, uh, the other thing, though, that uh, I think um, that I want to ask about that uh, that I think might be missing in the lessons is um, perhaps uh, paying attention to the role of the United States. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, especially now uh, in a situation where the U.S. has uh, turned towards, I mean, the U.S. has always been the main uh, force in Latin America for trying to undermine the left uh, or progressive movements. And I think everybody knows that. But I'm wondering, to what extent has the left ever really had a strategy for dealing with the U.S.? <laughs> I have the feeling it's always an afterthought um, that, uh, in other words, you know, we'll deal with it when it comes, so to speak, rather than trying to figure out how to deal with it uh, beforehand, uh, trying to develop a strategy beforehand to deal with the uh, efforts of the U.S. to undermine these countries. And then, of course, once uh, once it happens, it might be too late. Um, so uh, what do you think? Uh, again, Hillary, do you want to start? or? Sure. Um, yeah, no, I agree. I think it's it's really it's difficult to talk about these processes without sort of putting them in that, that context. Um, and I, I guess I think that um, it's impossible to divorce uh, a political response to U.S. empire from the economic strategies that we've already been talking about. Um, and that's that's especially true uh, the farther north you go in the region, right? So for, for Central America and Mexico and the Caribbean, you know, these are economies that are completely bound up um, in a totally, um, you know, asymmetrical but um, but very integrated relationship, you know, with, with the U.S. economy. Um, and, and in that sense, I think that um, the projects for, you know, regional integration um, are really, really important, especially for these smaller economies, you know, who 
um, just you know alone. That there's there's no way that they could ever have the kind of productive capacity that Rene has suggested is so important. You know, to um, to get themselves the kind of you know political room to to make uh, you know sovereign policy decisions. Um, and you know history has has shown you know that the U.S. Uh, will intervene again and again and again to subordinate, um, you know, efforts to towards that kind of more more autonomous regional integration to to the needs of U.S. capital. Um, so I think that I think that that's really uh, really really critical. Um, you know, I, I think I suggested in in our earlier conversation that um, the the sort of collapse of the ALBA block, but also also the other, you know, the diplomatic um, regional projects in South America was really devastating for the sort of incipient, you know, left projects uh, in Central America. Um, and I think it's impossible to imagine um, those that kind of project ever being successful without the kind of backup from a, a sort of a, a stronger regional uh, stance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the Chilean case under Allende, um, you know, really, really underscores the importance of having um, allies and trading partners, um, you know, regionally and, and beyond. Um, and that kind of um, solidarity, even if it's not on a moral basis, it's on a pragmatic basis, um, you know, is absolutely crucial. And I think along with that, um, this might might sound somewhat counterintuitive, but I think, I'll put it this way, the best defense, um, it's not always going to work, but the best possible defense against foreign, let's say, outside meddling and incursions and assaults is actually domestic, I think. Um, I, as powerful as the U.S. is in the region, right, it can't always get w what it wants. Right. Most recently, you know, in Venezuela, you have a, 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 you know, a society that's really, really falling apart. It's a terrible economic and social crisis. And the U.S., you know, tried to impose um, uh, Guaido, you know, as an alternative. And it just, you know, failed miserably. Right. Um, why? And I, it's because I think domestic circumstances in Venezuela, as bad as they are, don't allow for a U.S.-supported opposition to take power right now, right? And it's almost by default because there's just no good options in many respects. But if you look back at the Chilean case, right, which is once again, uh, you know, crucial in terms of this lesson under Allende, um, the U.S. tried very hard, right, to first of all prevent him from taking power and then in the early days of his presidency of intervening of causing uh, a crisis in the military so the military would take over and it failed really badly and the reason it failed was that domestically right Allende and his coalition was at its strongest point and Chilean elites were very divided and at their you know one of their weakest points in many ways right it wasn't until that equation that configuration the domestic configuration changed right and the Allende coalition starts to fracture and elites reunify the center and the right come back together right to oppose Allende that 
the coup was successful. The U.S. supported coup was successful. But I, I would maintain that that happened, that, you know, the U.S. strategy in Chile was successful um, because of what was happening internally, because of what was happening domestically. Now, again, I don't think it's foolproof. I don't think, you know, if the U.S. really, really deploys all of its might, there's little that you can do. But rarely can the U.S. deploy all of its might against our countries, right? There are many constraints that Washington and the foreign policy establishment faces when carrying out, um, you know, operations and, and its policies in the U.S. Um, and so, absolutely, I think the regional perspective is critical. But domestically, the domestic reality is also decisive in many ways. Hmm. Okay, well, on that note, I think we've covered a lot. I think we're going to have to leave it there. Um, but uh, it was really an excellent conversation. I'm glad to have had you guys on. Uh, and, you know, maybe we can uh, do something like this again sometime. Uh, I was speaking to Rene Rojas, Assistant Professor of Human Development at State University of New York, Binghamton, and Hillary Goodfriend, doctoral candidate at Mexico's UNAM University and contributing editor at Jacobin Magazine. Thanks again, Rene and Hillary, for having joined me today. Thank you so much, both of you. It was a pleasure. Likewise. I really had a lot of fun. And thanks to our viewers and listeners for joining the analysis.news. Please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and to donate something at the analysis.news website so we can continue uh, programming such as this. Thanks again and see you soon.